I have decided that this is the IQ test for the preachers. I don't know how well I'm doing. I want to mention two things really quickly before we get into the lesson tonight. The first thing that I want to mention is by way of clarification. And that has to do with the end of the word class. Uh, We had that class uh, five or six months ago. And at that time we went through the book of Ephesians. It's a class on Monday night. Hiram and I alternate teaching that class and we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it. Uh, We are going to be walking through what might seem to be a very familiar book, the book of Acts. That book was chosen because of our theme that the elders have, uh, are leading us to engage in, and that is encouraging everyone for eternity. There could not be a better book to study as the year begins than the book of Acts. So we would encourage you, if you have time free on a Monday night and you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you here. A uh, very relaxed environment as it was in its beginning. If you have small children, we don't have anybody to kind of watch them. They can just kind of uh, roam around the back of the auditorium. That seemed to work very well. The other thing that I wanted to say before we get on the lesson has to do with the sermon that was preached this morning. I don't know that a finer sermon has been preached in this building. I don't know that I've ever heard a finer sermon on the subject than we were treated to this morning. I believe it's a sermon that would well serve us if it was on the front page of our website. You think about how that was preached. It was preached completely, truthfully. And uh, with such conviction, but also with such kindness. It's a message in our pluralistic world that I'm okay and you're okay, that it stands out. And yet it stands out in the very best way because it was faithful and true to Scripture. Uh, I wanted to say that because I wanted you to know that I stand four square with everything that Hiram said so masterfully this morning. Appreciate it very much that he said it. Sometimes when somebody wants to study a Bible subject or a book, even those who are outside of the body of Christ, first place they want to go is the book of Revelation. We're fascinated by that. We want to know what the book is about and we want to understand it better. And it's so full of symbols and imagery that it can be very easy for us to get lost and to not really understand what's being said in that book. I have several books uh, that, that are devoted to the subject of the book of Revelation in my library. And one of them is written by uh, Dr. W.B. West. And he called that the, reading the book of Revelation through first century glasses. And he contends that if we put on first century glasses, that even the most difficult passages in the book of Revelation become simple to understand. I would say that Dr. West was pretty optimistic in that. And yet I do believe that that no subject that we come across in the Bible is impossible for us when we do some digging and some investigating, impossible for us to understand. So hopefully as we look at some of these things tonight, we'll see that to be the case. As you notice the picture there, that's George Custer. George Custer was killed in the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. You might know this, but it's mysterious as to who it was that took his life. A man by the name of Dr. Bruce Brown wrote a book called Who Killed Custer? What he did was he took all the eyewitness accounts of everyone who was present that day or connected to the battle, and he came up with what he called his three leading suspects. 
Suspect number one was an Ogallala Sioux warrior who was said to have killed Custer at the beginning of the battle, one of the first to die. In the same accounting, in the accumulation of witnesses, a second leading suspect in the death of Custer on the battlefield was Custer himself. It was thought that he took his own life at the end of the battle. And then there was a council that convened an Indian council in 1909 in which they had taken their collective testimony and they had come up with their own belief that it was a northern Cheyenne warrior that struck the blow in the middle of the battle. All the while, for well over 140 years, we have an oral history, a secret oral history that has circulated among the southern Cheyenne warriors and they are committed to the idea that it was actually a woman, buffalo calf trail woman, that struck the fatal blow. I mention that because of the fact that Custer's death came in the middle of something that we often call manifest destiny. This country was expanding from coast to coast, and this battle that took place was part of the history of us uh, claiming this entire nation. And this battle's mysterious. Custer himself is an enigmatic figure, and we want to know, how did this man come to his end? We like mysteries, and maybe we like military mysteries even more than other mysteries. You know, W.B. West, who I mentioned a moment ago, said that the greatest battle in the annals of time was the fight between the church and the Roman Empire. It went for 300 years, and the church emerged triumphant. And he relates the story that took place in the 4th century. There was a, an emperor by the name of Julian. Julian was fiercely nationalistic. He, in his reign, he decided to go and close all of the doors of what he called the churches of the Nazarenes. And he reopened all the pagan temples devoted to the Roman religion. He was traveling with the Persian army, and as he did so, he came to Antioch of Syria, and in that city he had a childhood friend who was now a shopkeeper, a tradesman, who had become a Christian. He disguised himself in clothes and went down into the city, and he met his old friend, and after boldly declaring that all of the churches of the Christians had been closed, he asked somewhat mockingly, so what is the carpenter of Nazareth doing these days? Boldly, that Christian replied, he is building a coffin to bury your empire. Two years later, as Julian lay dying, he said, you have conquered Galilean. Now, I want to point out to you that as you read throughout, especially the New Testament, but certainly it's also true, as you walk through the Old Testament, we often come across this battlefield imagery. We see the uh, chief of all the battle that's taking place between God and the enemies of God. And you'll recall that the Apostle Paul likes to talk about this and to use this particular word picture. You know he's a grizzled preacher who's about to lose his head for preaching the gospel. And he reaches out to his son in the faith, young Timothy. And on four different occasions, twice in both letters, he says to him, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 1.18, 1 Timothy 6.12, 2 Timothy 2.3, and 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. And as he urges him to fight, he says, you have weapons, but they're not physical, carnal weapons. We're not going to some kind of physical military crusade. They are the weapons of God. They are his power, the power that doesn't need any physical manifestation. 
We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. They are weapons of righteousness. And when Paul talks about this battle and this fight that's going on, he says God's given us armor. That armor protects us. It's the armor of light. Romans 13 and verse 12. It is the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 and verse 13. And God has given us tools. He's given us weapons so that we can successfully fight this battle. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. And so we've seen that over and over again as we march through the New Testament. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, this theme, this idea that there is a war, there's a fight going on, and it's between uh, Satan and between the saints, between the Savior and Satan, then it's one that we're familiar with. And as John is writing about this, he is helping us to appreciate the fight that's going on between the Christians and the Roman Empire. It's a spiritual one. It's not a physical one. If you measure it from the physical sense, then the Romans are winning. But if you measure it from the spiritual standpoint, then what John wants the people to know who are a part of the body of Christ is that not only are you winning now, but you're ultimately going to win. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, what we've got to understand is, and probably if we've heard sermons, we've heard a lot of sermons from Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation 3, the various churches of Asia. You know, don't be lukewarm from the Laodiceans. Don't lose your first love from the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2. And we've heard a lot from Revelation 20 through 22 when it talks about the judgment and it talks about heaven. But we don't study a lot from chapters 4 through chapters 20. And the reason for that is is that that is written in symbolic language. When you walk through the book of Revelation and you see those symbols, it helps us to remind ourselves that the word revelation is from the Greek word apocalypsis. And it means to lay bare, to make naked, to overcome. And so as John writes this, he is laying bare, he is making naked this this, uh, idea. And this idea is that the saints are going to win. But he does so, he lays it bare, he makes it naked through signs and symbols and imagery. And if we misinterpret the symbols and the signs, we're going to come to far-fetched conclusions. We're going to come to erroneous ideas. And so it's very easy for us to do that. And so we've got to discipline ourselves as we walk throughout the book of Revelation. This is made a little bit more difficult when we see that there are 18 types of symbols that are found in the book of Revelation. Something else for us to keep in mind is that while this book is a part of God's eternal truth and there is application that we can make from this and we're going to make some application tonight, we need to understand that the things that are written here, the things we're going to talk about tonight, they were primarily addressed to the folks that lived in the first century. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, which was read to us so well a moment ago by Travis, and Revelation 22, verse 6 and 10 are the book ends of the book of Revelation, and both passages tell us that these are things that are soon to take place. When we consider the book of Revelation, especially chapter 4 through chapter 20 and verse 10, It was written to the Christians who were living at that time who thought they had no shot, no chance, that they were going to be destroyed by the Romans, that they were going to be victorious. Now, with that in mind, I want us to look at three symbols, three of the most popular and maybe three of the most misunderstood in the entire book of Revelation. And that's the 144,000. Who are they? What's John talking about when he mentions this 144,000? 
And second, we're going to look at the idea of the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast? Who, does it, who's, who is it for? And what's it about? And then what about that battle of Armageddon? Where is that going to take place? Who are going to be the combatants who are in that particular battle? And so if we can in, properly interpret the signs and the symbols, I believe that we can come both to the right conclusions and we can make proper application. All right, so the first one is the 144,000. The 144,000 are first mentioned for us in Revelation chapter 7. As we look at Revelation 7, verse 3 through 8, John is going to talk about that, but let's see how we got to this point in Revelation chapter 7. First, in Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 3, John addresses those seven churches in Asia Minor, what's in modern-day Turkey. And what he does for them is, is he tries to, to tell them about the challenges they faced, but he's also encouraging them to overcome. You'll notice that with every one of those churches, even if there's some that have some pretty bad problems religiously, spiritually, and doctrinally, and even morally, he is saying it's possible for all of them to overcome. And so that's his message to an average congregation, even though they have different struggles, is, look, you've got such a great reward, don't give up. Then you get to chapter 4 and chapter 5 and you get to this symbolic language. And in the symbolic language of Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, this is where John begins to tell the Christians, you are in a Herculean struggle against the mighty Roman Empire. But here's two things that you need to remember no matter how bad it gets. Number one, I want you to remember that God is in control. He's always in control. Where do we see him? On the throne. And number two, and equally important, we need to notice that God loves his saints. That's Revelation 4 and 5. When you get to Revelation chapter 6, you see uh, the, this lamb, and the lamb encounters these seals. And seals keep things hidden. But the lamb has the power to unseal the contents inside and to show us what's inside. And what's inside is a message of hope and victory that there's going to be judgment against the enemies of God. And when we get to chapter 7, he turns to comfort again. And he wants them to know that they're going to come out victorious on the other side no matter what they have to face. Now it's in that particular context that he mentions the 144,000. I'm not going to take the time tonight to talk about what dispensational premillennialists have said about who these people are, this number, or our dear friends in the Jehovah's Witness faith, what they say about it. What I want us to do is to go straight to the context and see what this number means according to John. Number one, I want you to notice that this 144,000 is the number of those who were sealed. We see that in verse 4. And this idea of sealing is marking. It indicates ownership and identification. And what's happening here is the same thing that's going to happen with regard to the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is going to be a mark put on by the devil. But this is a seal or a mark that's put by Christ and by his Father on those that are his. It is a seal of protection from spiritual harm. As we see this picture of being sealed, it's a picture that we find throughout the New Testament. Keep in mind when you get to Revelation, John is simply repeating a lot of the images, a lot of the ideas, figures, people, and places that the other 65 books have mentioned. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, with this idea of those who are sealed, who are they? 
Well, according to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22, it's those who were baptized into Christ who were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's the same folks in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. They were sealed with the promise of the Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. When they were covered by the blood of the Lamb, His blood covered their sins. They were sealed by God. And God said, they're mine. I can see them. They belong to me. Or in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, the Bible says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Or maybe 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Wherefore the uh, promise of God stands sure having this seal, the Lord knows those that are his. Now in, you get over to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. And John sees the 144,000 on Mount Zion. And he sees them with the lamb. And they bear the name of the lamb and his father on their forehead. The picture that John is painting in Revelation chapter 7 is whoever this 144,000 are, who they are are the ones whose sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb and they are protected by God from spiritual harm. Keep that in mind. But the second thing that we notice is that the 144,000 were those who are from all the tribes of the sons of Israel. Now this may cause the mental gears to grind to a halt. We're thinking, now this is in the New Testament and we're talking about the sons of Israel and it causes us to ask a very important question, but John answers it for us in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 14. Are these the sons of Israel, are they literal or is it a figurative term? Whenever we're studying a Bible passage, always keep this in mind. Take a passage literally unless you are driven to the figurative. If there's no reason for you to interpret it another way, take it exactly as it is. So the way we approach this text before we begin to examine it more closely is that this 144,000 should be taken literally. But when we begin to study it more closely, we have to be driven to the figurative. Well, let's notice a few reasons why. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 3 through 8, you'll notice there's a listing of the 12 tribes of Israel. And if we were to ask ourselves what's unusual about this list, what we'll say is where's Dan and where's Ephraim? If this is a literal listing, those two tribes are missing. Something's wrong. And here's the second thing. This is the only place in all the Bible where the 12 tribes are listed, where Judah is first. It would be more natural to start with Reuben, the firstborn, but he doesn't. So we know that John is doing something symbolic, something figurative here. So this 144,000, this group that John is talking about, is the redeemed, the spiritual Israel, the church. But if we have any doubt, all we need to do is to go to Revelation chapter 14. If you'll look there in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, you have again the Lamb on the Mount Zion with 144,000, and they're singing this new song. And as they are there, there is this pronouncement of blessing upon those who are among that 144,000. And we know that this 144,000 is not literal, because if it is, there are some problems that we all have. Number one, if this is literal, then only men are going to heaven. Look at verse 5. Who are among that 144,000? Those men who have not defiled themselves with women. 
Uh-oh, there goes Mary and Hannah and Dorcas and all the saints, the women of the Old and the New Testament, all the way to the end of time, if that's literal. But if it's literal, that also takes care of all the married men because those who are sanctified in verse 5 are those who had not defiled themselves with women. And there goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Peter, and the other apostles besides Paul and all Christians who have been married throughout the ages to the end of time. If this is a literal number, not a figurative number, then it also would indicate that there'll be no Gentiles, only Jews. These sons of Israel, these tribes, literally taken, would be just the Jews. And yet, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, Jesus says that many will come from the east and from the west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. When we look and see this number, we also would say if this is a literal number and not a figurative number, then what about the tribes of Dan and Ephraim? They're missing. And there goes Joshua, the conqueror, and there goes Samson, who is in faith's hall of fame. When we look at this 144,000, what can help us is to see that as John is writing, he writes using a lot of Jewish symbols. And we already said person, places, and events, but something that was important to the Jews was something called numerology. Numerology is the discipline or the study of knowledge of numeric significance. Numbers were significant, especially to the Jews. In the book of Revelation and elsewhere, there's the number seven. Seven stands for perfection. It's the perfect number. Well, John uses two other numbers here in Revelation chapter seven and chapter 14 with that 144,000. The number 10 was the number of completion. So there's 10 uh, commandments. There's 10 virgins. There are uh, 10 uh, lepers who are cleansed. And then the number 12, that's the number of God's government. That's the number of the people of God. So you have the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and you have the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So you take that together. Here's what John is doing with that 144,000 number. He says it's 12 times 12. It's God's Old Testament people and his New Testament people. Which people, John? It's a thousand. It's ten times ten times ten. When you do it three times, that's absolute completion, perfection. And so what he's saying is this 144,000 are all the redeemed of all the ages under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. These are the ones that when God looks down from heaven, he sees the blood of his son covering their sins and he protects them from spiritual harm. If you're a Christian living in the first century and you're facing death on a daily basis, you find yourself in the distinct minority in the world in which you live and you wonder, who, how am I supposed to get through all of this? What John is saying to you is, you are these special ones who are sealed off and marked off by the Lamb and by His Father and He is going to protect you from all spiritual harm, maybe not physical harm, but you're going to be saved in the end. As far as I can tell, there's nothing more to be uh, uncovered about that 144,000. Wouldn't it be awfully remarkable if this were literal, uh, chapter 14 and verse 5, that there would be exactly 12,000 from each tribe who were not defiled, who were sanctified? No, he's, he's speaking symbolically. But that symbol has great hope. It had great hope for them, and it has great hope for us. Well, the second one that we look at is the mark of the beast. 
What John has said earlier in the letter in the book is that God's people, the redeemed, they're marked off, they're sealed off by the Lamb and His Father. But it's also true that the enemies of God are marked off, they're sealed off as well. That word seal and that word mark are very similar to one another. The word seal means uh, to uh, signify, to, to uh, indicate ownership. And uh, it, it's uh, akin to that word mark, which means to uh, a stamp or an identification. It's the word that was used for everything from coins to slaves. And so what John is saying is that the devil marks off his own as well. Now, we could spend several hours talking about the various theories that even our brethren have had with regard to the mark of the beast. Several days, if we take in what all the religious world has said about it. But what I'd like for us to do is to see for sure what we can learn from the context. And when we look at this mark of the beast, it's first mentioned in Revelation 13 and verse 16. But John is going to talk about this in Revelation chapter 14. He's going to talk about it again in chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 20. He's going to come back to that. So what can we know from our context in Revelation 13 about the mark of the beast? First of all, that we see that this mark was required by the earth beast. Now, we've been going for a little while as we're in some difficult territory, but I want us to back up for just a second. In Revelation 12 and 13, I would encourage you to go home and study this. There are three entities here. There's a dragon, there's a sea beast, and there's an earth beast. Now, I I want to challenge you to do this and see if it's not the case. Read it very carefully, and what you'll find is, in Revelation 12 and 13, that the dragon is very simply a name that John uses for the devil. He is the devil, he is Satan, he is that uh, serpent of old, he is the dragon. He is the great enemy to be defeated. That sea beast is the civil authority of Rome. And that earth beast is the religious authority of Rome. And what this, uh, this earth beast, this religious authority is doing is saying that you have got to worship the emperor. Now, even though this is about emperor worship, it is going to impact every part of the Christian's life. It was going to impact them socially. It was going to impact them occupationally. It was going to impact them in their family and religiously. And so we have this requirement of this earth beast to have this mark. Now, the thing we don't know is, was it a literal mark or was it a figurative mark? There are those like Barclay and others who say that there was a literal mark. That those who lived during that time, that uh, minor officials in the Roman Empire would observe. And when they saw them making their worship to the emperor, they would write them out a certificate and they would hand it to them. And if anybody, when they were going to trade their goods in their occupation, were to wonder whether or not that they were true to the emperor, they could present that certificate to say, here's my mark, I've got it. Some believe that maybe it was a literal sign somewhere that indicated that they, in fact, were uh, an allegiance to the Roman emperor and they worshipped him. But perhaps it was something figurative instead of something literal. Perhaps it was that those individuals in society could look at the character and the conduct of the Christians and they could tell that they were different. They could see from them that they were not living like the others in the empire. 
I tend to believe this because that seal in Revelation chapter 7 seems to be figurative. And so why not this mark of the beast being figurative? That they were known in the community and the Christians were. And because they lived by a different code of life and they did not bow to the emperor, that they were marked. And so the earth beast, that is the religious authority, required this mark of the beast. But I also notice with you in Mark, uh, Revelation 13 and verse 17 that this mark was universally required. If you were young or old, if you were slave or free, if you were great or small, nobody was exempted from having to have this mark. And so it was universally required. But also we, uh, notice as we walk through this text that without this mark, then a person faced physical death. If you were not known to be those who were worshiping and serving the emperor, you faced immediate physical death. All we need to do is trace through the history of the Roman Empire. There were times when it was either Nero or Caligula uh, or Domitian or others, and they saw to it that people either were boycotted by their society all the way up to the fact that they lost their lives. The Christians lived under a constant financial and physical pressure, facing either immediate physical death or eternal death. Revelation 20 and verse 6, if they gave in and they turned away from Christ and they went along with their society, then they faced a greater fate than even being killed by the Romans. And so as John is speaking to these Christians, he tells them that this mark of the beast was that which required great courage But then he begins to give a message of hope as you begin to continue to walk through Revelation 13 and 14. And that is that the mark, the number of this mark was 666. You heard about that, right? 666. What does it mean? Well, six in numerology has significance. It's one number short of seven. Seven is perfection. One is one short of seven. It is the number for man. And when that number is found three times, the idea is that uh, this plan of man will ultimately and always fail. Here's the application. Any system opposed to God and Christ, no matter what it is, if it's religious, if it's secular, whatever is opposed to Christ, if it is not in line with what he says, it will ultimately, finally fail. And that's what John is saying. This is the number of those, the mark of the beast. It is by uh, giving in to the Roman emperor, it is giving up being on the Lord's side. But then we also see that the ones who had the mark of the beast are those who face divine wrath. Okay, here's how things are. When you're living in John's lifetime and, and for the times to come while the Roman empire continues to exist, you find yourself on the short end of the stick in society. You may find yourself in abject poverty because you're being faithful to Christ. You may find yourself ostracized by your family and your friends. And it may be hard for you to look past the pressure that you're going through. But what John wants you to do is to see the difference. What's going to happen after all of this? And so in Revelation chapter 14, he gives a glimpse of divine punishment and divine wrath on those who have the mark of the beast. He says in Revelation 14, 10, and 11 that the smoke of their torment will ascend up forever and ever and they will have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever bears the mark of his name. And so John is saying when all is concluded, eternally speaking, those who have succumbed to the pressure to conform to this world, they're going to suffer forever. But by contrast, Revelation 14, 3, 
13 rather, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. John is saying to them what we often say just in a different way. We're not facing the, the pressures of the Roman Empire to the extent that they did. John is saying, hang on, stay faithful no matter what it costs and you will be eternally blessed. That was the message. And that mark of the beast represented the powers that existed in the world of their day. But then we get to that last one, the Battle of Armageddon. What is that all about? When you come to study the Battle of Armageddon and you begin to try to answer this question, as it is always the case, there are two interpretations that we want to avoid. We want to avoid an interpretation that would have meant absolutely nothing to the original recipients. When you think about people talking about an Armageddon that's to come in the future where Christ is going to conquer and he's going to reign for a thousand years and then there's going to be a final judgment, that would have meant nothing to those original recipients who were trying to make it through the day. And when you're making an interpretation about anything, you want to always make sure that you don't uh, read something that's in conflict with less highly figurative passages. Don't interpret everything else in the New Testament by Revelation uh, chapter uh, 19 and verse 16 and 16 or 19 and verse 11, but instead you interpret what's happening here with all that the Bible says about the end of time. So when we come to try to understand what the Battle of Armageddon is all about, we've got to understand what is happening with that word. The word Armageddon simply means the hill of Megiddo. And the hill of Megiddo is a place that's very strategic in Israel. If you want to put it in your mind, the, uh, that little valley of Jezreel where Megiddo is, is a place where 15 miles to the west you have the Mediterranean Sea, off to the east you have the desert, and you have the empire, the kingdom of Egypt to the south, and you have Mesopotamia to the north. It's this very important land bridge. It was very important for Israel, but also it was highly fought over throughout the ages. Whoever controlled this had a very strategic place on this earth. And so when John is talking about a battle that's to come, he wants us to picture it this way. This in a place that's very strategic. By the way, it's a very small, a very narrow place. And because it's so strategically located and uh, trading caravans and conquering armies were going up in this very small land bridge, 34 major conflicts were fought in the valley of Megiddo near Jezreel over the last 4,000 years. And those that were there in Megiddo had control over this area. So what is John doing by mentioning this valley of Megiddo? What we remind ourselves is, is that often in the book of Revelation, John uses places to describe concepts. In the book of Revelation, he speaks of the church as Zion and Jerusalem. And when he wants to talk about those who are opposed to God, look at Revelation 14 and verse 8. He refers to them as Babylon. That's a literal place in the Old Testament that uh, uh, took the people of God into captivity. And then Sodom and Egypt, in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, these were to represent those who were engaged in wickedness. So just like Jesus, when he was trying to help us to understand about hell, he would look out over the city of Jerusalem and from the Temple Mount, he would look down over a valley called the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. 
It was a trash dump that was always on fire. And he would say, that's like hell. Hell is a place with an unquenchable fire. So Megiddo simply means a place of battle. What John is trying to describe for the people of God is that they were engaged in a fierce battle. It was a battle against the Roman Empire and all of its power and all of its greatness. And so often when you see Megiddo, Armageddon, as it's mentioned in Scripture, you'll find that the people of God had the smaller force. And so if you think about Deborah and Barak, when they were fighting the Canaanites in the period of the judges, they had the smaller army, and the Canaanites had the bigger army, and they fought in the valley of Megiddo. When Gideon fights the, the Midianites, and you remember he had that huge force, and God says, I want you to whittle it down to 300. And when he got the number down to 300, where they could see that they needed God's power, they went into the valley of Megiddo, and they defeated that greater force. So several times we see how, in fact, even in Josiah's day, you know, we think about Josiah, he was killed because he defied the, the, the king, the Pharaoh, Necho, who said, turn away, what do I have to do with you? And Josiah stayed in the battle, the last righteous king of Judah, and he was killed, but because he stayed with the army in the valley of Megiddo, it kept Pharaoh Necho, Necho from joining the Assyrians, and they did not win their objective. So let's put that in the first century glasses. The Christians feel invisible. They feel like they're helpless and they're hopeless. That the enemy has a far greater force than they do. And as they find themselves feeling so insignificant where the noise of the world is drowning them out, God is saying, do you remember how in the past the smaller force of my people have defeated the greater enemy? I want you to have assurance that that's how this battle is going to turn out. But I want you to notice something else, and that is that nowhere, whether we're talking about in Revelation 16, 16, or Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, is there any battle at all? In fact, if you look at it, the, the, what happens is, is that the sword of God's mouth, of the Lamb's mouth, comes out, and they're it, in chapter 19 in verse 11, the enemy crumbles without any kind of resistance at all. The book of Revelation doesn't read as a direct thread. What John will do is he kind of lurches forward and backwards and he's going toward his ultimate conclusion. In chapter 16 and in chapter 19, he's trying to talk about what's going to happen at the end. And in chapter 19, he says that Rome, your enemy, is going to fall ultimately. And then in chapter 20, he says Satan, the greatest enemy of all, he is going to be defeated. He's going to fail. And there won't even need to be a battle. And you know what? God won't need our help. He won't need to muster us to go and help him to fight. He spoke this world into existence and he'll speak this world out of existence. It's because of this that the saints could be confident that they're going to win because God was on their side. They fought with the Lamb. And they fought with those weapons of righteousness, with the armor of light and the armor of God. And because of this, the enemy could take their bodies, could kill them physically, but could not separate them eternally from God. I don't know how else to have broken that down, but to look at it in that way. But I want us to consider three things that are still true for us today. The first thing that's still true for us today is that the Lord still knows those that are his the Lord looks down on this earth, 8 billion people, and he sees his saints, his children, his sons and his daughters. 
He sees the blood of his son having covered their sins, our sins. And he sees us as his dear children whom he loves. The, the second thing with regard to that is that the Lord knows those whose God is the God of this world. He looks and he sees and he knows those who have been blinded by the thinking and by the objectives and by the purpose of the world. And he, he wants them to join us in living on the Lord's side. But if we never make that decision and we continue to follow the world, he tells us what can be expected. There's the wine of his wrath which will be poured out in the fury of his anger. Revelation 14 and verse 10. And then also the Lord knows how he will end this world and he knows when he will end this world. And if we'll be faithful as long as we're in this world, we don't have to worry about what happens at the end of this world. What John is doing, believe it or not, in the book of Revelation is he's trying to make this very simple for us. Let's not worry about some doomsday Armageddon, some kind of nuclear war. Some kind of biological warfare that's going to bring everything to an end. What John is saying is let's be ready for the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. And if we do so, then we're going to be among those whom John says will overcome the world by our faith. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. And he says really it's simple. We get to choose which side that we're on. We get to choose who is our commander in chief. We get to choose who is the winning side and who is the losing side. But we can't judge it necessarily by what we can see right now and by what the world says. Because the victory comes at the end. Now that was his message to the church, the seven churches of Asia and the Christians who are trying to make it through this world. But those principles apply to us. I think about this as we get to the end of our worship service on Sunday night. We're about to leave here together in the comfort and the security of being with one another and our fellowship and we go out into the world this week where the prevailing worldview may mirror in some way some of the things that the Christians faced in the Roman Empire. But as we do, we have the same God who loves and protects us and who has told us, they that overcome can come over. To say with John, I have seen the end and Christians are going to win. This evening and tonight it may be that you have not yet made the decision to join in that greatest of all families, the family of God, by responding as we even studied this morning in response to the grace of God by obedient faith. If we can help you to make that decision tonight, to act on your faith, to be baptized, repenting of your sins, we'd love to do that. It may be that you need to respond as a child of God for prayers on your behalf or maybe to confess sin or to have us to pray for you as you turn away from it. If you need to respond to this invitation, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.